Thank you for listening to our church podcast where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. Most of the sermons will be preached by our founding pastor, John Cole. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m. for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Amen. Last week we started this book of the Bible, Philippians, and we began chapter 1. And last week we took time to look at two verses. And uh, preached a little bit long for two verses, uh, but I had some foundational matters I wanted to make sure that we were addressing as a church to help us understand important matters of how the church operates and works. Last week we looked at Paul and Timothy and the church of Philippi and how they were believers who found joy with one another in Jesus as they served him. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi from a prison, likely in Rome. Some people argue different places. I believe it was there in Rome, and it was there while he was awaiting his trial. Four-point outline that I gave you last week, uh, we looked at the authors, or the author of this book, and his attitude, and also his companion's attitude. That was Paul and Timothy. Look with me in verse 1 and 2, and you see that there. Paul is writing to this church of Philippi. And their attitude is that they are servants of Jesus Christ. I pointed out last week how usually Paul would introduce himself as an apostle. And this time, he didn't do it every time, but many of the times he did. And this time he said servants. And we pointed out how he had servant, uh, he was a servant leader and had an understanding that he was owned by Christ and that he was there to serve these people as the Lord would allow. Secondly, we saw the audience and their applications and how there were bishops, deacons, and saints in in the church, just like in our church here today. A bishop is the same as a pastor or an elder. There were uh, several of them there in the church. I don't know how many, but there was more than one that were bishops or pastors that were leading the church, helping make decisions for the church and helping recommend uh, the direction and uh, give the doctrine, give the teaching, give the shepherding for the church. And then you have the deacons that would serve the operational matters of the church like we have here today with Marvin and Malachi and how they serve the church so well and help uh, as a sounding board with me since we don't have other pastors and then also as they help with the administration of the church, the bookkeeping and meeting vendors and making sure that the grounds are taken care of and behind the scenes things or taking phone calls. The people call the church and it goes from Google Voice to Marvin's phone and he answers the phone. And uh, I'm grateful for people in our church that are servants to the church, and then also the saints in the church of Philippi. And those are just believers. They're holy people set apart by God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you and I are saints as well. And we looked at that on Sunday. We saw how a saint is not just, uh, it's not some person that a people or a church classifies as a greater Christian than others, but rather a saint is someone who's saved by Jesus Christ. And then we also saw the area and its influence here in Philippi. Paul is writing to them about, about I believe, 10 years after he had met them in Philippi. Paul met them because God gave him a vision of a man that was calling for him in Macedonia. That led Paul to change his direction and to go from where he was planning on going and going to Macedonia, which brought the gospel into Europe. And when he went there, he went to Philippi, and Philippi was a Roman colony, a kind of a copy of Rome, a little colony where veterans in the military there for Rome would settle down, and and the people there would have a Roman citizenship. It had a great affluence. When Paul went there and first witnessed, from what we could tell, the only recordings we have is that it was women that he first went to who were worshiping by a riverside. And we believe that there weren't enough Jews, Jewish males, to have a synagogue. 
And so they met together with them. It's possible that was true. It may not have been. But either way, Paul met them by the riverside and shared the gospel with them. And uh, they came to Christ. Lydia was uh, very influential in all of this. And eventually the church was established. Paul didn't get to stay very long with his company, those that were with him, Timothy and others. And he, he had to leave. But he came back a couple more times. And he spent time with them and affirmed them. And the church got organized. That was the people, that was the area. And then fourthly, last week, we looked at the appeal that Paul gave to God for them and his affection. He asked God to give them grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where we spent all of our time last week, is looking at the two verses. And that was the, really the summary of last week. We asked ourselves this question, do we have attitudes of a servant of Christ? Do you and I, like Paul, have attitudes that say we are a servant of Christ, I am owned by Christ. Do we not only have those attitudes, but are we surrendered to help our church function as a body under Christ in whatever role is fit for us in our service? Paul spoke to these three groups in the church, the bishops and the, the deacons and the saints, but whatever role that God brings you into the church, are you willing to be a contributor and to be a part of that, to help this body function as a church like the church of Philippi? Paul was very full of joy about this church as he watched them function like a church body. Not every church can be like that. Some of the churches Paul wrote to were dysfunctional. They had sin problems. They had a lot of division problems. This one might have had a little bit of division, it seems like, in one of his letters. But it didn't seem like that that was the primary characteristic of the church. But that the church was a church that was uh, loving and supportive and helpful to Paul's ministry and faithful where they were. We ask ourselves, do we find our identity in Christ? Is our identity found in Christ rather than where we were born or, or who's our parents or how much money we have or what's our education? Because remember, these people in Philippi were in an affluent area, uh, but no more important than any other area. And while they were in that area, Paul reminds them, and we'll look at this later in, on in the message, that they are, they are citizens of heaven, which trumps being a citizen of of Philippi. And so these people are being reminded of having an identity in Jesus Christ, and you and I must ask ourselves, do we find our identity in Jesus Christ? We can often be tempted to find our identity in other things. You and I naturally seek significance. We find significance in our vocation. We want people to see our skills and our gifts and abilities. And we want, you know, when we introduce ourselves, we want to introduce what, what we do and who we are and what's our significance. But the greatest significance is found in a humble servant that just says, I'm just a, I'm just a, a child of God. People will see your gifts and skills if you have them. People will see your character. They will learn of the depth of other areas of your life without you as Proverbs teachers having to tout them and share them. You don't have to share all those things. They're there. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle with that. Finding our identity in Christ. I want to find my identity in Jesus Christ. Do we look for grace and peace in God our Father and in Christ? That was the last question we'd ask ourselves. Do we find, look for grace and peace in God our Father and Jesus Christ? Many times we're looking for grace and peace in other sources. And then we concluded with two statements. Let's have joy together in Jesus. And let's begin by finding joy in serving Jesus. This letter is written by a servant of Jesus who found great joy in serving Jesus. 
He found great joy in serving people that Jesus loved. And that really is where you and I will find joy as well. Joy is not found in happenings. That's where you get happiness. Joy is not found in things we consume. We need things. We need things to to provide for our needs. But joy is not found there. Joy is found in an abiding, serving relationship with Jesus Christ and letting God do through us what he would not just do for me, but that God would work through me and bring the gospel to others, bring love to others, bring resources to others. A joy is found there. And Paul found that joy, and he wrote about it as he spoke to, wrote to these people in Philippi, these believers. A few moments ago, we read several passages of Scripture here in Philippians 1. I want us to see those again, if you will, as we get into the message here. The first one we read, it began in verse 3, where Paul, writing to these believers in Philippi, in this Roman colony that uh, had been saved in probably about 10 years now, this church has been forming and developing and in existence, and it takes time to do so. He writes and says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He's had about 10 years of remembrance with them. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making requests with joy. He would say that he would be thanking God as he prayed for them, making requests for them with joy. And then notice he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. His Thankfulness and his prayer was not just for them, but it was for their fellowship and the gospel. I want you to note in your Bibles, if you mark, you can mark it, but if not, just note it there in verse 5, fellowship in the gospel. He was finding joy in their fellowship in the gospel. We'll come back to that. Verse 12 Later on, and we're going to look at the verses in between these, but I want us to see verse 12. He says, But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. In this section, Paul begins to write about things that happened in his life that were unexpected that he didn't know about. But as those things happened, he is telling them that I know and I have confidence that God did these things for the furtherance of the gospel. So we find Paul finding joy in the fellowship of the gospel and the furtherance of the gospel with these believers in Philippi. And then verse 27, it reads, Only let your conversation or your manner of life or your citizenship, uh, your behavior as a citizen, we'll look at that more later. He says, Let it be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Live like you are a representative of the gospel of Christ. Live in such a way that gives honor to the fact that you are in Christ, that you have the gospel. Live for the gospel. Live because of the gospel. Live like the gospel. And he goes on to say that whether I come and see you or else be absent, because he's far from them, I believe about 800 miles or so, He says, I may hear of your affairs while away, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we see here the fellowship in the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel, and the faith of the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at the fellowship in the gospel in verses 3 through 11, and the furtherance of the gospel in verses 12 through 26, and we'll look at the faith of the gospel in verses 27 through 30. 
Apostle or servant Paul and those serving with him were passionate about the gospel. And so were the bishops, the deacons, and the saints within the church of Philippi, as every healthy church will be. Every healthy church will be passionate, not just about their lives and and hoping that God would prosper their goals that they personally and individually have, but a healthy church has a passion about God's goals, God's purposes, and about the gospel. They found joy in the gospel. The gospel is constant and unchanging. Constant and unchanging. It's God's finished, complete work of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in your life, if you and I are finding our joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in Christ, there is a constant source of joy that doesn't change. It's always there. If you know Christ, if you believe the gospel, you can always find a joy in the gospel. When you go through your trials of life, when you rear children and things don't go quite the way you hoped with your children, when you have wrecks and difficulties in finances, when you have health matters that you go through, when you have divisions in the family or in the home or elsewhere, whatever it might be that as you and I go through, we always have a source that we can tap into for joy. In Jesus Christ, in the gospel, in the fact that we are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we are given the Holy Spirit, that we have an eternal home in heaven. I know we know this thing, and sometimes we can yawn about it. Oh, I know that. But think about it. There's no greater joy. There's no greater gift. There's no greater benefit. There's no greater pursuit than what you already have if you and I are saved. If we have been redeemed. We have God in heaven who reached down and became the God-man in order to bear the sins that I have committed and you have committed. God did not have to do that. He also did not have to create us and choose to have a personal relationship. He could have just been a distant creator that created us and just set things into motion. But he chose, when creating us, to be the Lamb of God, to live among us, to bear our sins, He chose and wrote the plan of the gospel. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He wrote it. He completed it. The gospel is a source of unending joy if we'll partake in it. And today we'll see from the text how to find joy in the gospel. I want us to just have a quick word of prayer and we're going to jump in to the rest of the message. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We pray for strength and ability to serve you and to preach your word faithfully. I pray that you would give grace and that, Holy Spirit, you would work today. Help me not to get in the way of the message. May Jesus Christ be lifted up and glorified. Help our hearts to be attentive to what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many have heard of Billy Graham. It wasn't that long ago that he went to be with the Lord. He was always known for witnessing to not only great crowds, but where he would go. And I read a recent testimony of him that I found interesting. It was that one of the distinctives of his was he had an ability to find a way to fit the the gospel message in all kinds of conversations. As much as possible, he would seek to fit a seed of the gospel in wherever he would talk. One said that if he was taking his clothes to the dry cleaner to get him clean and he had to tell you about it, he would find some way to turn that communication about 
taking his clothes to the dry cleaner with the, the person that's helping him, somehow he find a way to talk about the gospel while he's talking with them. I heard it said that he did something unusual whenever he would go and prepare to speak before like a, a TV broadcast or a radio broadcast. You always have to do a sound check. And usually when someone would do a sound check, the people that would typically talk on their CEOs and you know, celebrities and such, when they would speak, they would count numbers or they would go through the alphabet or they would talk about what they had for breakfast that morning, something like that. But whenever Billy Graham did his mic check, he would start to quote John 3.16. Once he was asked, why would you do that? Why do you always quote John 3.16? He said, well, if I don't get to successfully and clearly give the gospel like I want to in the broadcast, I at least know the cameraman gets it. And I thought that was, that was a wonderful, and he was, a wonderful testimony to many of having a passion to getting the gospel to many. He was known specifically for partnering with many for the sake of the gospel. He created enemies because he partnered with some that some didn't want him to partner with. But he was willing to partner with many for the gospel's sake in order to get the gospel to masses. And he had his own method of doing so. But Paul starts his letter here by stating his gratitude and joyful prayers for these people who partnered with him in the gospel. Partnering in the gospel is what we do. It's what the fellowship is about. He's writing to these people who partnered with him in the gospel shortly after he had met them and even until the writing of this letter. You and I need to have and follow the example of someone like Paul, a passion to partner for the gospel's sake. The first point we have as we go through this text today is fellowship in the gospel. Fellowship in the gospel. And he said, Paul wrote to these Philippian believers in this church that from the first day I met you, from the first day until now, You've partnered with me. Early on, this church, who had some people that were able financially, they began supporting Paul, bringing him into his home, helping them with needs, and having a unique partnership with Paul. Not just financially, but in prayer. Sending people to go help him and literally be with him and minister to him and help him. Sending people from their own church to go work with Paul in the ministry praying for him. They had a fellowship. That word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which is fellowship, participation, and partnering. I want you to notice with me how Paul describes their partnership, their fellowship in the gospel. Again, this fellowship is not talking about just sitting around and eating a meal together, though that is a part of it. It is a pulling together on the same rope, going the same direction for sake of the gospel, saying we, we are all in this together. Church and the ministry is a partnership that calls for expressed thanksgiving. And he gives that in verse 3. Look there with me where it says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I think we ought to be encouraged by Paul's example to not only partner with people, but as we partner, 
express gratitude. As we partner together, it's so helpful when you pull to say to the next person, thanks for pulling with me. It's so helpful when someone else is doing a role in the church to say thank you for what you're doing. It's so good for my spirit and soul when I see someone else that's laboring in the gospel with me to say to God without them knowing, like Paul did, he thanked God upon every remembrance of them. To go to God and say, God, thank you for my brother and sister in Christ. Gratitude is vital for a healthy church that pulls together in the same direction. When people feel like that they're, they're pulling, but no one else is pulling with them, or no one really appreciates the pulling, it just makes it harder to keep pulling. And Paul knew the importance of thankfulness. Thankfulness to God about others, and thankfulness to others about them. I want to encourage you, and I am encouraged as I read this, to not just be thankful for people, but make sure they know I'm thankful. So I don't want to be, you know, some people say, I don't want to be a kiss up. I, I, I don't want to say these things and look like I'm kissing. Hey, listen, that is an over concern. People are, people are overly concerned with that. Just express thankfulness to one another. No one else in the church, if you go to them and thank them for how, how they're involved, if they help with something, no, no one's going to say, oh, you're, what are you trying to do? You're trying to... I mean, unless you do it like you seem shady or something, you know, they're not going to be like, you grab my wallet, what are, you, what are you trying to do? Trying to take something from me? For the most part, people are genuinely going to appreciate it. They had a thankful fellowship, Paul and the Philippian church. They also had a prayerful fellowship. In verse 4, notice with me, he said, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. And may we grow in our diligent practice of praying specifically for one another, praying for each other. There was a fellowship in prayer. And the beautiful thing about fellowshipping with people in prayer is you don't even have to be together. You can be working, you can be driving, you could be in your house somewhere laying down before God praying, or you could be out on a pathway somewhere or along the beach and you could be walking and talking with God and you could be laboring in fellowship of the gospel through prayer with other believers right in our church. Laboring and saying, God, please help my brother, help my sister remain faithful in their faith. Help them not to be deceived by sin and doubt. We have brothers and sisters with us that have been a part of us and been faithful with us, but I believe some of which are struggling with their faith. We just haven't been seeing as much. We should love them and pray for them. And may we have a whole, a whole army of, of body of Christ naming our brothers and sisters in Christ to God in prayer, saying, God, please help us stay faithful. Never looking down upon and never condoning, never looking down at someone because they stumble, because it might be me next. We all go through hard times. Life brings challenges, temptation and sin, and Satan is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the most important thing that you and I can pray for is the spiritual state of one another. Oftentimes we pray for one another's health, and we should. But I think too often we neglect one another's salvation if someone doesn't know they're saved, or one another's spiritual growth that people might grow 
Do we ever pray that someone might be uh, grow into teaching in the church or serving in the church or giving in the church or evangelizing to the lost? Pray that one another grows in grace. Regular prayer, laboring. Those that might have more time, if, if someone is retired and you have a little more, more time to pray, take some of that time to handwrite a list of people in the church and get their name and sit down and, and start writing out some prayers to God and saying, God, please help so-and-so. You say, I don't know their names, then, then learn each other's names. Go shake someone's hand after church and get their name and go add it to that list and write it down. And if you're not retired, do as much of that as you can as well. If you have extra time, though, use it and labor in prayer. If you're busy, write a list and put it in your car. And when you're driving, pray for them or put it where you're shaving in the morning or ladies brushing your teeth, okay? But be prepared to pray for one another. Prayer for fellowship. Pray for spiritual warfare. Pray for spiritual fruit. Pray for gospel witness. Pray for health and stewardship. There's joy found in praying for people. There's joy found in listing people's names before God and just caring about them. Thirdly, we see a confident fellowship. A confident fellowship. Verses 6, six through uh, 11 here, look with me where we saw... Not only that Paul thanked God for them and prayed for them and that there was a fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, verse 5, but verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he, speaking of God, which hath begun a good work in you, the Philippian believers, will perform it, will keep it, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the return of Christ. He's saying, I am confident that when God saved you, he began a work that he's going to keep doing. Now, this is exciting, folks. God's salvation is not just a one and done. You got saved sometime in your life where you trusted Christ as your Savior, and God's done. He paid the full price on the cross. And when I respond to the gospel with repentance and faith towards God, believing on Christ, turning from self trusting in Christ, and God justifies me and calls me his own, he not only justifies me and redeems me, but he begins a process of making me more like Jesus. He's sanctifying me. He's making me like Jesus until I am glorified before God and I lose this robe of flesh and I lose my sin nature and I am in his presence and no longer battle sin. Paul later on talks about how he wishes he could just go on and experience that now. But he wants to remain faithful to what God wants. Paul was confident, and I am confident, and we ought to be confident that when God has saved you, when you responded to the gospel and trusted Christ as your Savior, that God is working in you. And it is God directly working in you. He's working in your heart. He uses different means. Some of the means he uses is the preaching of the Scriptures. As the Scriptures preach, and you hear a word of God, and it pricks, it starts to feed your soul, and you feel it down deep inside, and it begins to feed your soul, and change the way you think, which changes the way you act, that changes the way you live, and then you start doing like we taught the hour before this. You start loving people that you didn't love before, and you don't know why. Why would you love someone who is unlovely or who, who doesn't do anything for you? But when God begins to work in me and you, one of the greatest hallmarks of a believer is not just that they try to separate from everyone, but that they love everyone. A confident fellowship. 
Specifically, God is using Paul to write here about their salvation, their sanctification, their glorification, that they will be redeemed fully by God. And broadly here, I believe that you can consider broadly that Paul believed, I don't believe that the text is specifically referring to this, but that Paul believed that God would continue the work he is doing in the church there. That God would continue to do the work in the Philippian people as they're not only saved, but as they are a church. Friends, you and I can be confident that God will complete the work He is doing in you. He will. It's His work. Think about the day when you came to Christ, if you remember that day, that time. Think about the work God has been doing in you and how you're different today than what you were before. See the evidences of God changing your desires and your hearts as you follow Christ. He's going to keep doing that. Just remain faithful to Him. We see God's faithful work here in this confident fellowship. And then we also see in verse 7, in the beginning of it, Paul's loving heart. Paul's loving heart. In verse 7, it begins, Paul writes, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Paul had these believers in his heart. He had an affectionate longing for them in Christ. Consider with me verse 8. Look with me there. Verse 8 says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. That's talking about in, in the, the affection of Jesus Christ. He said, I long, I long after you. Now, why would you long for someone like that? You know, these, these people were a long ways away from Paul. But that's what happens when God saves us and changes us and begins using us, you start loving people and caring. And Paul had a loving heart for them. He was confident in God's faithful work. And notice with me also that they had a shared grace in verse 7 and the second part. Paul says, Inasmuch as both in my bonds, so like his, his imprisonment, his bonds, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are partakers of my grace. Gospel fellowship calls for sharing time, talents, treasures to partner together in the same cause. Paul is talking about how possibly verse 7 is referring to when he was in bonds, when he was actually with them in Philippi. It might be referring to Rome, but it might be referring to back when he was there with them. But either way, he's saying that while I've had bonds and I have been defending the gospel and while I've been teaching the gospel with you, you've been a partaker of my grace. The grace that God has given me, the grace of opportunity to serve, you have been partnering with me in this. We have a shared grace. That's the confidence Paul had, a confident fellowship in God's faithful work, his own loving heart, knowing he loved them because God moved him to love them. They had a shared grace where they worked together. And then lastly with that, we see a spiritual growth. Verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, we see a, a spiritual growth that Paul describes that he desires for them. In verse 9 it says, And this I pray. This is his prayer for the people. A loving Paul, having confidence that God is working in them, praying about that working. And he says, I pray that your love may abound. 
I pray that you would be full of love, and I picture a cup that's just running over, a love that's just abounding. And then he goes on to say not only a love that may abound, but yet more and more a knowledge in all judgment or discernment. All three of these ingredients greatly complement each other. He's saying, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that you would be full of love, and that your love would have knowledge, and that it would have discernment. If I just have a love, especially if it's more of an affectionate love, I might do something for someone that I love that's not good for them. But when I match knowledge to it and discernment and ability to understand or wisdom how to use knowledge or to understand God's word and to be able to discern between good, better, best, or even good and good, and I'm able to grow in that knowledge and grow in discernment, I'm able to love properly. Sometimes, out of a motivation of love, parents hurt children. Sometimes, out of a motivation of love, people do things that are harmful for other people. Because they think, oh, I just love them so much, i got to do this. But it's really not a good thing to do for them. It's not helping them right now. Sometimes, you know, with parenting, we have to give a lot of love, and we have to give a lot of discipline, and we have to give a lot of affirmation and, and time together. And you got to give those combinations and... Sometimes people give a lot of love and then no discipline. And what happens there is that there's challenges that take place where the kids haven't learned discipline, learn how to obey and follow authority. And then sometimes people are way high on authority and, and discipline, but they don't want to give any love. And it's all rules, 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 and just strict, strict, strict. And then what happens is the kids are super obedient right over here for a period of time, but then they get older over here and they're like, I can't wait to get away from this. And when they become an adult and they don't have to obey, they don't. And so there's a need of knowledge and discernment when we love is the point. And Paul's not writing about child rearing here, but that's just an application. He's just simply saying, I'm praying that you would abound in love with wisdom, with discernment. He also goes on to pray that they would have discerning wisdom. Verse 10, he says, that ye may approve things that are excellent. He said that you would be able to discern things that are excellent. Good. That you'd be able to discern doctrine, discern deceivers, discern truth from error. I pray that you would grow in your discernment. And then we see the latter part of verse 10, that ye may be sincere or pure and without offense till the day of Christ, the return of Christ. He refers to that several times here. Here he's praying that they would have Christ-like purity. I pray that you would remain pure that you would be sincere, single-focused in Christ with a purity. And then he prays that they would have Christian fruit in verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. We see examples of Christian fruit in Galatians chapter 5. We won't turn there, but it describes some of the Christian fruit that should be expected in a believer as we grow in grace. And here the Bible is saying that these believers, Paul is praying that they would be filled with fruits of righteousness. And where do those fruits of righteousness come from? Jesus Christ. By Jesus Christ. For what reason? Look at it. What do you think what reason it is? Unto praise. Unto the glory and praise of God. Ultimately, when God is growing me, when God is growing you, it's to bring glory to Him so other people can see God and who He is. Truth. Not because he needs it, but because he knows we need it. 
Because if he is truth, then we need to know truth. If we don't know truth, if he has not glorified his truth, then we will seek after error. And so God is working in them. And Paul is writing and saying to them, I have joy in the fellowship of the gospel that I have with you. He expresses a thankful fellowship and a prayerful fellowship and a confident fellowship because of God's faithful work and Paul's loving heart and their shared grace together and spiritual growth. I won't be able to spend as much time on the others. I had originally planned to only preach that part. But I really want us to see these other verses here and take a little bit of time on them because it doesn't end there and this thought just needs to continue to flow where we see Paul writing about their fellowship in the gospel. But notice a a change that takes place here and that's the furtherance of the gospel. There was a shoemaker after all and an average one of that, but in the evenings after work, he studied Greek, Hebrew, and a variety of modern languages. He devoured Captain Cook's voyages to expand his horizons, which, because of his poverty, kept him bound to a small, forgotten English village. Some people said that he wasted time and he would be better off if he were to work a second job and support his growing family, but the young man's passion wasn't just a curious, self-satisfying hobby. Early in life, he had become concerned about the millions of unbelievers that were outside of where he was in Europe. And he was trying to figure out what could be done to bring them the gospel. With God's help, he slowly figured it out, and he ended up going to India to serve as the first Protestant missionary in the modern era. His passion inspired a generation of men and women, such as Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, and David Livingston to take up the cause of missions. And you may not know those names, but those names are well-known names of beginners of the modern missionary movement, of people leaving their own places, their own countries, and going to others and, and plowing and pioneering in places where the gospel had not been given and where the scripture had not been translated for them and where possibly the people didn't even have a written language and they would have to work with them on a written language before they could even figure out a language in order to then translate the Bible from the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic into this new language that they worked with. And it would take many, many, many years. And that was the pioneering work of missions. And this man was very vital and important in it because of one impoverished shoemaker named William Carey. How he followed his God-given passion, large parts of the world that had little or no access to the gospel have large populations of people today who confess Christ as Lord. His many well-known quotes, I'll share two of them with you. One of them is, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And he lived that. Attempt great things for God. He also said, God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. We ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. It's amazing how God will use those that are submitted to his will. Those that will not say, you know, God needs me. I'm important, but rather would just say, God, if you'll use me, I would love to be used. There's No knowing how God could use each of you and this church and this community and me. There's no knowing exactly how God would do it if we will yield ourselves to him and say, God, I am yours. 
There's no ceiling on it. Nobody knows but God on what He can do with you and what He could do with me if we'll just yield ourselves to Him and say, God, I am yours. Use me how you please. But it's a scary thing to do because saying I am yours means that He's in control and things might not go exactly how you expect. But there's no better, better place to be than in the will of God. Paul is about to recall how God threw him some curveballs, which changed up Paul's plans, but furthered God's plans. So we see here in verse 12, Paul's providential happenings. Paul's providential happenings. Notice with me in verse 12, Paul writes, But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Paul had not expected to be called to Macedonia or to Philippi, but also he did not expect to be a prisoner in Rome. As Paul wrote down his, this is 10 years, you know, from then, as he wrote out his 10-year plan, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to go to Macedonia, I'm going to go to Philippi, I'm going to go to all these other places, and then after that, I'm going to go be a prisoner in Rome. It wasn't what he wrote. God gave him some curveballs, and he went with them, and he's talking about them right here. And just as the church in Philippi needed to rejoice in the providence of God to bring Paul to them, they needed to rejoice and trust in the sovereignty of God to direct Paul to other places, including this Roman imprisonment. God uses Paul's imprisonment to bring the gospel to Rome and its leaders as well as to give Paul a place to write some of his epistles. It's amazing how God worked here. Paul wanted to go to Rome, and he wanted to share the gospel with people here, and God brings him in in a nice, safe passageway. And if you recall when we preached in the book of Acts, he had a whole entourage of people that were keeping him safe on his way to Rome as he had Jewish rulers who were trying to kill him. And he went on from one place to the next and eventually found his way to Rome. And there in Rome, he had a couple years, eventually he got his own hired house, Probably a large house where he was a prisoner. He would likely have a chain on his, his arm and possibly on his foot, one or the other, and he would be chained to a guard, always having a guard with him all the time. Can you imagine what that would be like? But he had a, a larger house that he was in. He was respected as a prisoner through time. And he was able to use that house as a place to share the gospel. People would come and gather with him as he would teach. He was able to witness to guards that were chained to him. And when he taught other people instead of the guards, the guards had to hear. And then he had time to write. And he had time to write letters, and God in his wisdom gave Paul a plan that Paul did not expect. And Paul is saying here, verse 12, I would you should understand. He said, it's my desire that you would understand this. That brethren, the things which happened unto me, they've fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. God had a plan in it. It was God's plan, not my plan. And this plan that God did furthered the gospel. We also see his inspirational testimony. Paul's bonds inspired other people to more boldly preach the gospel. Look with me here in verse 13 through 14. 
Paul writes, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest. That means they're, they're displayed, they're made, they're shown forth, they're manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident. That means growing confident. Okay, we don't say that too much now. But he's saying they're waxing confident, growing confident by my bonds. And because of that, notice it says, they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, because God made me a prisoner, because God gave me bonds that they could physically see as they came and heard me teach, and they saw me with fervency teach with these bonds, their faith was emboldened, and they went out and did likewise. They said, if Paul can be faithful with bonds, I can be faithful without them. And if Paul can endure bonds, then if God gives me bonds, I can endure them too. One of the greatest ways God uses you and I are ways we don't ask for. Trials, sufferings, difficulties. They're the strongest sermons we ever preach. When you teach your children, when you teach other people, that's all good and so needed to instruct and teach. But the greatest messages we preach and teach or when our children see us stay faithful to Christ with joy in our heart and faithfulness in the church and serving Him while going through trials. And they don't say, oh, I guess you only do it when things are going good. One of the greatest sermons that you and I can preach is when other believers in the church and other people outside of the church, they look into our life and they see us faithful when curveballs are brought that bring trials and difficulties that we didn't expect. Hopefully, you and I write plans out in our life. We don't only think about, what, am I gonna, what food am I going to eat today? Where's McDonald's? But we think about, what, five years, 10 years, 20 years out? What, what might God do in my life? And then offer those goals and give them to God. Always bring them to God and say, no, God, you can do whatever you want with these. But writing them out. It's a fun practice and a little bit, I'd say, a little bit discouraging. There's time a few years back I wrote out till I was about 70. I'm like, well, that's boring. And it was like big stuff, but it was just like, okay, that's all. I mean, they're just objectives, things. Everything inside of those are what's exciting. It's the people. It's, it's the relationship with God. It's the emotions. It's the joy. It's the walk. It's not the destinations. Whatever you write out, that, those may not happen. But what God brings into your life that you don't, you don't create are stronger than what you can manufacture and what I can manufacture. May we be faithful when we are given curveballs, when we are given trials that we don't ask for, we don't expect. Paul had an inspirational testimony that motivated others to be faithful. So we see here in this furtherance of the gospel, Paul's inspirational testimony, the providential happenings that took place, and now the spiritual rejoicing. And I won't take time to read these verses for sake of time, but verses 15 through 18, you had people that were giving Paul a hard time and contending with him, but they were preaching the gospel. And there's different views of who these people were. And for sake of time, I'm not going to get into that. It's more of a lesson that I would take. But you had these people that were fighting with Paul and, and giving him a hard time as he was doing ministry, but they were preaching the gospel while they were doing this. And notice what Paul says. We won't read all of it, but I do want you to see 
after verse 15 talks about some of them preaching Christ of envy and strife, some of goodwill and so on. Notice he says in verse 18, what then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And therein do I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. He says there's people here that are causing grief, causing division, but the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is being propagated. And because we don't agree in everything, and even some of them are enemies of mine, I still rejoice because Christ has preached. What I see there is spiritual rejoicing, spiritual rejoicing. Mature people see the big picture. It takes spiritual maturity to say, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff going on there, but the big picture is, from God's view, okay, the gospel is still being preached. I rejoice. The lack of spiritual maturity, when that takes place, what I do is I get inside it, real close with all that, and I try to tell everyone what I think. And I just add to the mix. Lakeshore Baptist Church needs spiritually mature people to see the big picture of God's gospel furtherance. Then lastly here under this, we see the eternal hope. The eternal hope. In verse 18, Paul talks about an eternal hope he had that guided his temporal hopes. Look with me in verse 18, if you will, please. The latter part of it. He says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do I rejoice, and yea, will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So you say, oh, okay. So he's saying, I know I'm going to get out of these bonds. I know I'm not going to be a prisoner anymore. That's not what he's saying. That kind of message would be given by some that would be pushing a prosperity gospel kind of message that says, you know, if you're faithful to God, God will take the shackles off and he will remove your debt and just speak it out of your life and it'll go out of your life. But that's not Bible. With what we see here in Paul's attitude is Bible here. Notice what he says. He says, I know that this shall turn to my salvation, but his view of salvation was a lot broader than his bonds. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope, my deep expectation and hope, my belief with expectation, he says, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed of my hope, he's saying. I'm not going to be ashamed of my trusting in God's salvation, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. The salvation Paul is talking about here is ultimately that God is redeeming Paul, that God has saved Paul, and that Paul would be with him in eternity. And that he might bring him through a liberty from bondage to that salvation, or he might bring him in it and keep him in it. And he might die in execution, but either way, he says, I'm not ashamed. I know that I am saved. See, he believed in an eternal hope, not just a temporal hope. He said, if God brings me through bondage, if he brings me to an execution, if I lose my head, if I'm pulled apart, if I am crucified, if I'm dragged behind an animal, if I am stoned again, whatever happens to me, it's still God's salvation. Because he has saved me. He has bought me. And notice what he says in verse 21. 
For to me, to live is Christ. That's the definition of his life. It is Christ. And to die is gain. He said, that's a, that's a wild perspective that you and I don't tend to have. To die is gain. What he's saying is, look, I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been through many trials and difficulties. People have hurled stones and rocks at me. You know, to die would be a gain. My body aches. I preach the gospel and I have enemies. To live, it's Christ. I do it for him. To die, I'm with Christ. That's a gain. So he shares his assurance of salvation in verses 19 through 20. And then he shares his purpose of life in verse 21. His purpose is Christ. And then notice here he shares his struggle of life in verses 22 through 24. His struggle of life. 22 reads, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not. He says, so if I stay alive in the flesh, okay, that I'm I'm laboring, good, I get to have fruit. Yet I don't really know which one I would choose if I had to choose one. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ. That's to die and to just be with him, which is far better, he says. Now, we don't all feel that way, but Paul felt that way because of the difficulties he was going through. But then notice he says, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And then he expounds on it in the next two verses. And so Paul says, if I stay here, that'd be great. If I stay alive, if I'm able to continue writing epistles, if I am given liberty out of this imprisonment, I can come. It's more needful for you. But really, it's hard for me to decide which one I would choose if I could just choose. Because if I could just go be with the Lord in heaven, that would be better for me, Paul says. And we see here the struggle of life, especially as a Christian. One complexity to our Christian life, always remember, one complexity that the lost world, those that don't believe on Christ, don't have, is that you have a citizenship in heaven. You have an eternal life you're looking forward to, and you always are seeking to balance that. Because you got to steward this life here, but you can't forget to set your affection on things above. You got to think about things that are eternal. And the lost world tries to just shun that out. I don't answer to a God. I don't want to think about a God. In some ways, that makes this life less complicated because they say, you know what? I'm just going to work my job, do the things I want to do, and just get through life. And when you're a believer, you say, but I can't do that. I answer to God. I stand before Him one day. I can't live like there's not an eternity. And there's a struggle. Which one do I do? If I could just go be the Lord, Paul says, that'd be great. But it's more needful for you that I'm here. So we see the fellowship of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel, and we end on the faith of the gospel. The last two Sundays have been a little bit longer, and it's been a little bit intentional, so just follow along with me, but I'll be coming to a conclusion. The faith of the gospel in verses 27 through 30, Paul tells them, Whether I'm with you or absent with you, I hope to hear that you live like this. And then he goes on to describe it. Look at me in verse 27, please, in Philippians 1. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that, and then he goes on to describe more. We'll look at that in just a moment. But he's saying, 
He's like, listen, do these things so that way, whether I'm with you or whether I'm away, when I hear of how you're doing, I want to hear that you're doing these things. And this is what he says. First of all, he tells them to let their conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. I believe this is similar to Philippians 3.20, just a couple pages over, where it says, For our conversation, same Greek word, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our conversation is in heaven. I believe when Paul's writing here, he's referring to, the Greek word is polytuthsday. Uh, it's hard to say. David, I may have totally massacred that. I listened to it in my Bible software and I couldn't get it. But it means to live as a citizen. Do you see any resemblance there in polytuthsday? Polit? Politic? You see that there? A little bit of a Greek word there. I once heard it said that politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and then applying the wrong remedies. What do you think? You like that? Harry Truman, talking about politics with a group of Yale students, was asked by one earnest youth, how do I start in politics, sir? Harry Truman replied, the former president, You've already started. You're spending somebody else's money, aren't you? <laughs> Paul is saying to live in a manner consistent with being a citizen of heaven and a representative of Christ's gospel. A manner consistent with saying, I'm not, I'm not just a citizen here in the U.S., and though I count it a privilege to be a citizen of the U.S., I believe I live in the best country of the world, and I've traveled to a number of them. I thank God that I live here. But my citizenship ultimately is with Christ in heaven, and it's a greater place, and there is a king. It is not a republic, a democratic republic. It is, it is a kingdom under Christ. How good. How blessed. And Paul is saying to these people, I want to hear that you're living like you're an ambassador of Christ. Like you know that you're a citizen, and you're in Philippi, but it's like you belong, you belong there in heaven, and you are here, and you're an ambassador, you're a representative. Then he says this, and I'll say these quickly, verse 27, he goes on to say that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit. Paul says, I hope that I will hear that you have a unified stance a unified stance that you'll stand strong. And then he says that you have a unified mind, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. A unified spirit, a unified mind. You're citizens of heaven. You belong to Christ. And then he says, I'll give you the words to be a synergetic team. He says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The root Greek word there is synathleo. You have two pieces to that, syn, S-Y-N, where we get synergy, and athleo, where we get athletics. So you have a synergetic team, and he's saying striving together. It's not talking about fighting, okay? It's talking about like an athletic team which strive together for a common mission. He says, I hope to hear that that's what you're doing, striving together, working together, running the race.
And then he ends with a similar suffering, a similar suffering. Verse 28 goes on to say, and nothing terrified by your adversaries, because they had adversaries as well, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Notice in verse 29 and 30, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same affliction which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul is saying, you're hearing me talk about suffering. I've got these bonds. And as you pull together as a team, as you're unified as a team, as you're unified in mind, as you're synergetic, also know that part of that laboring in the faith of the gospel is you will endure suffering like I endure suffering. Remember the founder of our faith, the one who purchased our redemption, Christ, he suffered. The next chapter we'll get into next week and the message will be much shorter, but that will be a time where Paul is talking about being humble like Christ and how he suffered. Christ suffered, he's about to go there. But Paul is saying, I have suffered and you've heard I suffered. You be willing to suffer. Be willing to suffer together. And what is suffering? I don't know. For them, it was having enemies. But it is going through hard times and having some level of suffering and being willing to face attacks and friction and difficulty. But doing it for Christ's sake. When William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school in 1904, he was heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, which made him a millionaire. For his graduation present, his parents gave him a trip around the world. Don't hold your breath, kids. As the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. And finally, Borden wrote home to say while he was away, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. At the same time, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. In his Bible was found no reserves. During his college years at Yale University, Borden became a pillar in the Christian community. One entry in his personal journal that defined the source of his spiritual strength simply said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. No to self, yes to Jesus every time. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started a small prayer group that mushroomed into a movement that spread across the campus at Yale. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting for weekly Bible study and prayer. And by the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. One out of 13. Borden met with the fellow Christians to make sure every student on campus heard the gospel. And often he ministered to the poor in the streets of New Haven. But his real passion was missions, going to a foreign land, as we described before. Once he narrowed his missionary call to the Kansu people in China, Borden never wavered. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden wrote two more words in the back of his Bible, no retreats, no retreats. He turned down several high-paying job offers and enrolled in seminary. After graduating, he went to Egypt to learn Arabic, uh, Arabic, sorry, to work with the Muslims in China. While in Egypt, Borden came down with spinal meningitis, and within a month, he was dead at age 25. Prior to his death, Borden wrote two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he wrote no regrets. 
no regrets. In conclusion, we see here that Paul and the people of Philippi, these believers, found joy in fellowship in the gospel, a partnership in the gospel. They found joy in the furtherance of the gospel when God did the work and it wasn't theirs. They found joy in the faith of the gospel and Paul prayed that they would continue to be faithful in their faith, that we might find joy in the gospel. How about you? Do you want to find joy in the gospel? Do you want to be faithful to what God has? You want to follow the admonitions that Paul gave and that the church received and followed? I do. And we're going to take just a few moments here and pray together during the time of invitation. And we're going to ask God to help us be faithful. Help us to follow him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. I pray that you would help us to find joy in the gospel, not just joy in our circumstances, not just joy in what we desire, but joy in what you have. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.